The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The guidance is just never clear, and it's up to really broad interpretation. And in a lot of ways, the frameworks that have been released, they do that by design. Like they don't want to inhibit innovation. They don't want to limit our access to technology. But I think providing clear direction for how one can determine whether human subjects research is involved, what type of documentation is required, what type of consent, what type of information that participants would need to give meaningful consent. I think if there was clear guidance for researchers, practitioners, those interested in partnering uh, with the federal government, I think that would make a huge difference. I'm Catherine Pompilio, Associate Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 15th, 2023. The use of deepfakes, a form of artificial intelligence known as deep learning to create manipulated or generated images, video, and audio, is on the rise. In 2022, the U.S. military took a nearly unprecedented step by declaring its interest in deepfake technology for offensive purposes. But the Defense Department's exploration of this technology poses privacy and ethics risks, especially with respect to human subjects research. To unpack all of this and more, I sat down with Amy Nishimura, a cyber student fellow at the Strauss Center for International Security and Law at UT Austin. Amy recently published a piece on Lawfare entitled Human Subjects Protection in the Era of Deepfakes. We discussed the significant dangers posed by deepfakes, how the Defense Department can support the protection of human subjects in its research on the technology, and more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 15th, Deepfakes and Human Subjects Protection, with Amy Nishimura. Just to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Who are you? Well, I'm currently a graduate student at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I'm also a cyber student fellow with the Strauss Center, and uh, I'm a, a volunteer with the Safe Alliance. And my background before returning to school uh, was working in trust and safety for a variety of big tech companies. And so we're here because you recently published a piece on Lawfare entitled Human Subjects Protection in the Era of Deepfakes. What made you interested in this subject and what made you want to write the piece? So I'd actually been interested in deepfakes uh, for a while through my volunteer work. 
working on cases for domestic violence and sexual assault, uh, deep fakes kind of came up and it made me want to read more about it. And so I got exposed to the work of um, like professors, Danielle Citrone and Marianne Franks and some of the work that uh, attorney Carrie Goldberg was doing. And kind of from there on, I've always had a sparked interest. And what kind of prompted me to write this piece now was uh, a recent uh, Intercept article that talked about U.S. SOCOM's interest in offensive uses for deepfake technology, which I thought was really fascinating. Okay, yeah. So let's let's dive into it. Uh, so just to get us situated, what is a deepfake? Uh, a deepfake is a digital forgery, and it's created through AI, and that's just a high level. Is there, you know, a big difference between, say, like Photoshop and a deepfake? What is it capable of? Deepfakes are manipulated or generated images. And so deepfake detection and generation models are built off of data sets that contain uh, images, video, audio of real people, but also synthetic images, video and audio. And they're trained on thousands or even millions of data points, which makes it substantially different than a photoshopped image uh, that you can just manipulate on your own. And so where did they come from? Or I guess what what was the first deep fake and what's their position on the internet? You know, where do they usually come up and what do they look like? So the first real use of the term deep fake um, came from Reddit. It also came from kind of our more commonly or what we commonly think of as deep fakes, which are deep fake pornography and usually of celebrity women. And a lot of times when we speak about deep fakes in this space, we're talking about non-consensual pornography, or at least that's been the primary uh, use case. Mm -hmm. And so can, can anybody use this technology or do you have to have some really advanced system? Are there different levels to it? Uh, there's different levels, of course, but um, nowadays anybody can use this technology. Yeah, I've seen some um, some scary videos online of even just, you know, presidents or, or foreign leaders that I have to kind of do a double take because they're looking more and more realistic. So in the context of national security, and we'll get into, you know, the Department of Defense and, and their use of deepfakes, but how do or how might adversaries use the use this type of technology? So in the context of national security, um, deepfakes can be used, honestly, in information warfare to try to impair operations, to try to manipulate elections, and mostly to erode uh, trust in public institutions. Yeah. So what might, that, what might that look like? Well, we're kind of seeing it today, right now, with the ongoing wars in Ukraine and, and Gaza where there has been some identified deep fakes of war propaganda. One of the ones that comes to mind uh, was an image of a Gazan man carrying five children through rubble, um, which turned out to be a completely generated image. And it's used to kind of incite uh, public support or sway public support. And so what's the difference between kind of a regular disinformation or other forms of disinformation to kind of sway, you know, public opinion and deep fakes? Are they more dangerous, would you say? How would you characterize that? It's hard to say. It, honestly, it's hard to say that they're more 
they're more or less dangerous than other forms of disinformation, but they they typically have a malicious intent. But yeah, I'm not. I'd have to give that more thought if they were more dangerous than yeah, other forms sure. of disinformation. What sort of research has uh, the U.S. government done to kind of you know detect and deter or, or just learn more about deep fakes? The government has done various research and reports to try to not only detect but combat deep fakes. I think there's a lot of ongoing research. Um, there's continuous hearings. Um, I was just listening to a Senate committee hearing uh, for Homeland Security where they also discussed the dangers of deep fakes. Got you. And you wrote in your piece that that last year the U.S. declared its interest in deep fake technology. What was this? What did they say via what channels? This was the U.S. Special Operations Command, which is kind of the you know most elite units from the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, and they had updated a procurement document, and this was reported in that intercept story I was telling you about. And mm-hmm. they had uh, updated a procurement document that explicitly laid out their intentions to provide a next generation of deep fake to influence operations via non-traditional channels. And mm-hmm. according to the reporting, that was like almost an unprecedented move to kind of explicitly write down that not only were we interested in this type of technology, but we were interested in it for offensive uses. Yeah. And do you know, you know, to what extent DOD uses deep fakes? I guess how far the research goes into potentially no. using it? I no. I <laughs> I do not know the extent, no. Oh, the black box that is the Defense Department. <laughs> yeah. So you wrote that deepfakes create a new type of harm that's dubbed the liar's dividend, which is particularly relevant in the context of national security. What is that and why does it matter? Sure. The liar's dividend was coined by uh, professors Danielle Citrone and Bobby Chesney in their seminal deepfake paper. And it's basically the windfall that bad actors can get from the kind of chaos that deepfakes and the distrust that deepfakes create. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, it's the idea that you could hide your bad actions uh, by claiming that something that's real is actually a deep fake. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, you know, if, if a president, I guess an example of that would be like, if a president, you know, actually did something bad and then uh, they were accused of it, they'd be like, no, what are you talking about? That's just a deep fake. How, how dare you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, scary. Um, so what type of data and approximately how much of it is needed to create a deep fake? This one's really hard to answer because it really depends on the method that you're using to generate deep fakes. But typically, I would say that a deep fake image requires hundreds of different images, and a deep fake model would require thousands or maybe even millions of data points. It just really depends on the, the the technique that you're using to generate the deepfake. And whose data is DOD likely to be collecting? Well, they're likely to be collecting it from various sources. Scrape data, data that's just pulled from the open internet, is commonly used to build 
data sets, but the proprietary deepfake data sets are so valuable because they involve direct collection, often with paid actors, where they can control the environment for things like lighting, distance from camera, um, different angles of face, different audio um, considerations that make them crisper and higher quality. To create a deep fake, you need, you, like you said, you need biometric data. So what is biometric data and why is the use of this data particularly dangerous for the subject or the collection of this data particularly dangerous for the subject as compared to, you know, other, other information about a person? Biometric data is data that, that's collected from uh, a human, their unique physical characteristics. It includes things like their fingerprints, but it also includes things like their image. And I, I'm making the argument that when you collect things like a person's face or their voice or their mannerisms, you are collecting kind of the most personally identifiable data uh, a person has. It's not easily changed the way you could change, say, your social security card or your email. Mm-hmm. Because you can't change it, that's why it's particularly dangerous. Yeah, it, it's because you can't change it. And then I think of things like the advancement of image search, that your face is something that someone could use to search and find more information about you. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this is different than like, you know, a static image in that they're finding out more information about you, but also, you know, they might find a video of you saying or doing something that you didn't actually say. Right. Which might be more, I don't know, I guess, believable if it's deep faked rather than just some kind of shoddy Photoshop job. So you wrote that the Defense Department and ODNI have released frameworks that aim to address the risks that AI poses to constitutional rights and civil liberties. What are these frameworks? What do they address? And what, what do they fail to address? Sure. Um, the ODNI has a artificial intelligence ethics framework that's meant for the intelligence community in particular. And then the Defense Department has a responsible artificial intelligence strategy called the Responsible AI. And both of these frameworks address risks in AI, but most of the risks that they focus on are AI outputs. But the risks that they address are civil liberties risks, uh, in addition to other cybersecurity risks. What do they fail to include? They both, both of them fail to include guidance for the handling, use, and storage of biometric data. And neither of them really address the idea of informed consent for the collection of some of this data. Why do you think they left that out? I just don't think it's in the forefront of their minds. I think when people think of technology, they're not necessarily thinking of human subjects or human subjects protections. Yeah. And that brings me to my next question. You know, at the center of, of this research is people or human subjects, as you as you mentioned. How can the government support the protection of human subjects in its research? What do they need to do? Well, in some ways, they need to follow the policy and guidance that already exists. I talk about in my piece, the common rule, um, which is the code for protection of human subjects, the federal policy for protection of human subjects uh, in the U.S., which came out of uh, 
kind of a long history of uh, revelations of maybe poor human subjects practices, we should say. So in my mind, some of it is just following what they're already, what they already signed on to follow. And maybe we could create a clear pathway to do that by developing a taxonomy for review of when technology does touch on this type of research and what kind of added review and protection should exist. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, and you mentioned sometimes that they kind of, you know, they didn't, they failed to apply the common rule, or I guess failed to consider research ethics with human subjects research before. What happened in those cases? So the cases that I um, point out, um, I talk about the church committee. Um, there was also the Pike Committee at the same time, which investigated kind of illegal federal intelligence operations, and kind of what we got from those reports was that to preserve liberty, we need the constraint of law. And after the revelations in those reports, um, there were also things like the Tuskegee study, which is something uh, a lot of people learn about where Black men with syphilis were kind of deceived into believing they were receiving treatment for their syphilis, um, but they were actually not receiving any treatment. And we now find that to be kind of abhorrent behavior. But before we didn't have any guidance to kind of prevent those, what we now call ethical lapses. Does the common rule account for deepfakes research or not? The common rule doesn't specifically account for deepfakes research, but I'm making the argument that because of the, the collection of biomedical information and PII, personally identifiable information, that the common rule standard should apply to deepfakes. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Why? Why? And this is, <laughs> this is a very specific use case because, for instance, a lot of um, deepfake models have been trained off of public data sets that were scraped from the internet. And right now in the law, we treat scraped data differently than directly collected data. Scraped data is probably treated di- differently because of the idea that um, if it exists out there, someone willingly shared it, put it out there. Whereas mm-hmm. directly collected data, uh, participants need to be informed about what they're participating in because this is a form of an experiment. Yeah, absolutely. Could you just specify the difference, I guess, between as you mentioned in your piece, informed consent and broad consent and how they're related to human subjects research and how they interact? Sure. So informed consent is the idea that when someone is participating in research or an experiment, they understand 
what they're participating in. Whereas broad consent is usually applied to secondary use of research so that a researcher doesn't need to get informed consent for different uses of collected data, including storage and maintenance. But broad consent typically relies on the initial informed consent of the of the participant. And the common rule was updated um, only a few years ago to sharpen the requirements for informed consent to include participant understanding, specifically understanding why someone might want to participate in this type of research or why they might not. Just for my understanding, could you give us a, I guess, hypothetical example of how, you know, informed consent and broad consent interact from, you know, a subject's, a human subject's point of view? What does that look like when they enter an experiment? Sure. So if I am looking at an opportunity to be a paid participant in a research study and they tell me that they want to collect uh, pictures of my face and they say they want to do it to create a face detection model and they tell me why uh, this would be beneficial and the, the way they see it being used. And they tell me maybe why I w- might not want to or the risks that might come from collecting this type of data and storing and then manipulating this type of data. And then I agree to participate. That would be my informed consent. The broad consent comes from my agreement to participate broadly, I'm consenting to them storing this type of data or the maintenance of this type of data as well. Gotcha. And then that, you know, you're consenting to whatever they do with it in the future, I guess. So like if you want, if they, if they take it and then want to sell it, does that kind of come under broad consent or do they need to go through you again? That's actually an interesting question. Um, And I think that is still up for interpretation. I would argue that that's material enough that it should have been presented to get my initial informed consent, but others might disagree. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned in your piece, I'm going to try and get at, you know, the Air Force research labs with deep media, but in this case, could you explain the case and also has DOD failed to, you know, establish informed consent? So when I included deep media in this piece, I just wanted to give an example of what does it look like when the government or DOD is contracting with a private firm for the procurement of their deep fake technology. I found deep media from searching for awarded grants, and they had received multiple uh, CIBR or small business innovation research contracts for their work on both deepfake technology and universal translation. But in terms of like, have they violated any standards? I wouldn't go as far as to say that at all. I don't think I know enough about what kind of data they shared uh, with the AFRL or what kind of consent they they were able to collect. And what, just for context, what 
what's the story there? How, how were just the two interacting? I know you mentioned some of it in your piece that it's, you know, it's an app where, do you know anything about that? It's an app where people upload their, or it's a, it's a software, I guess, where people upload their images. So uh, Deep Media does have commercial apps uh, for syncing and translation. And in terms of their deep fake technology, I've seen a few of their interviews with them. Uh, they presented uh, this year at South by, and um, I've seen a few other interviews with the CEO, Rigel Gupta, where he talks a little bit more in depth about why their, their data sets are kind of stand apart. They have a proprietary data set of over a million faces, images, and voices. They haven't publicly discussed, to my knowledge, how that was collected. Gotcha. And just for clarity, they, and they were contracted by the Air Force? Or they just received Air Force a- Research Laboratories, yes. Got you. So also in your piece, you wrote about dignity harms and how they're related to deep fakes. Could you talk a bit, what is a dignity harm and and how does this apply to this technology? Sure. In my piece, when I was discussing how how the U.S. formally adopted uh, the common rule, um, it came out of principles that were outlined in the Belmont Report which provided ethical principles uh, for the protection of human subjects research. And it kind of had three, three core pillars, which was uh, respect for persons and beneficence and uh, justice. Part of respect for persons is an individual's autonomy, their ability to act and deliberate in their own interest. And we've determined in law that a person's right to autonomy, a person's right to well-being, these are good enough goals in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. How could the government require contractors to establish informed consent? What would that look like? Uh, I mean, there's a few ways. The uh, the FAR, the federal acquisitions requirements, um, and then the defense has their own special uh, supplement in addition to the FAR, uh, lays out procedures for the protection of human subjects. And that would be an excellent place to go further. And to, I suggest that there would be benefits, especially for government contractors, to have some sort of taxonomy that they can look at when to evaluate their technology for whether or not it involves human subjects research and then what additional steps that they need to take to ensure they're complying with existing law. And does that create some sort of compliance burden for contractors? I think it does, but not any more than other compliances that we have for like the processing and uh, securing of data, for instance. Yeah, fair. So we've been talking pretty narrowly about, you know, research and, and the ethics that come along with, you know, human subjects research framework. What's the connection between human subjects research framework and safeguards and broader national security? Why does it matter in this context? Well, I think it matters all on its own. Um, I do think that, you know, these principles are not just principles in the United States or global principles. And I think that especially as we look to the advancement and the evolution of technology, of artificial intelligence, I think it's going to be more important than ever to 
make sure that we are considering not just the the potential outcomes for humans, but the the real human inputs that go into this technology. How it relates to national security is this technology is already being deployed domestically and abroad. And I think we just need to make sure that again, we're we're putting human well-being first. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what any, you know, lawmakers have had to say about this? Is there any legislation in the works to address the issue? There's lawmakers have a lot to say about this. I've seen a few committee hearings now that talk about concerns with copyright and IP um, in terms of uh, data inputs. And I've heard a lot of concerns around making sure that we're protecting our warfighter abroad and making sure that we have the most relevant technology to face our adversaries. So it is being discussed a lot, I think. Yeah. What outcomes would you like to see in any special guidance on deepfakes published by government agencies? Do you have any recommendations for them? Yeah. When I was researching for this, I got to speak to a lot of uh, machine learning practitioners. And I would say the most common feedback I got was that the guidance is just never clear and it's up to really broad interpretation. And in a lot of ways, the frameworks that have been released, they do that by design. Like they don't want to inhibit innovation and they don't want to limit our access to technology. But I think providing clear direction for how one can determine whether human subjects research is involved what type of documentation is required, what type of consent, what type of information that participants would need to give meaningful consent. I think if there was clear guidance for researchers, practitioners, those interested in partnering uh, with the federal government, I think that would make a huge difference. Yeah. And what what do you want readers and people listening to this interview to take away from from your piece or or the podcast? Any broad takeaways? Well, I clearly don't have all the answers, but I think there needs to be a discussion about how much individual liberty we are willing to compromise in terms of national security. And I hope this piece kind of adds a little bit to that conversation. Absolutely. This is this was great. Oh, thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, 
a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.